so I you, you always turn my phone on silent, and I just happened to pick up my text, you know, all kind of texts about, um, you know, Ariel saying, where are you? Um, you know, for about announcements are about to start, or um, what time is this event? And I look over at the Melchings, and you guys top it. You guys uh, had said, they did this their first time here. And they got lost, and I looked, and it was a thread of, we're in Land of Lakes, where are you? We are eating it, We are eating Danishes and drinking coffee inside of a church where they were at Cypress Creek Church or something like that. <laughs> Folks, they rolled up here and pulled in and said, our gas tank is literally empty, so we'll follow you. And uh, just, I would just, bless, man, it blessed my heart. So thank you all for being here. And, uh, um, and so, you know, I, I told the earlier service when I was about to uh, teach this, there's a there's a moment that you look at scripture like this, and if you're not careful, you, here's what happens when you go to study for it. You read a chapter, and you think, oh yeah, that's going to really, like, how do I dissect this? So I break it up three different ways, and then there's times you read one chapter, and you think, okay, that took about two minutes. Now what do I do? You know, how do you, what, what application is in here? And here's what happens when you teach uh, and you preach through scripture. You have to teach things contextually. You have to teach them as they were meant to be taught. So if it's a history story, it's a history story. There it is. If, it, if it's a story regarding um, application to this particular person, it's regarding that. But it can have an impact and a direction on who we are. So for instance, uh, you know, Scripture says the Word of God is, is living and active. Uh, the Word of God cuts like a two-edged sword. It's, that means this. If you grew up under parents, or you grew up in a household, and you saw maybe how a parent was talking to another parent, that message may have been for them, but it means that you can also derive something from it. You can watch that and think, I can grow from that. That's how it is with the scripture. This scripture is telling a story about Samuel, and it's about Samuel and a man named Eli. And then also, when you're seeing this, you're thinking, okay, I get a better picture of what's going on, but now, what do I do with that in my life? So I hope to have some personal application for you at the end of this that'll somewhat relate. So let's review. Let's go back and do a little review. Before I do that, let me just pray for myself real quick, and that we'll get clear. Lord Jesus, Lord, thank you for uh, your word, and I just pray that, uh, Lord, I'm not a distraction in any way that you have us here um, what we need to hear. Let our hearts be removed of any thoughts or distractions that would take us away from hearing for the one that cares for us more than anyone will ever care for us and loves us more than any other one will love us. And for all the substitutions we put in our heart and our head, Father, put them to the side so we can focus on you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have not been a part of our series, let me bring you back to last week. There is a man named Eli. He is a priest. He is a priest who has two sons. These two sons have become disobedient. They become disobedient. Not only were they taking sacrifices that were meant for God, these priests were taking this stuff for them. They were also... Um, immorally wrapped up in relationships with women that were serving at the church outside the door, taking advantage of them. These are men using their positions as high priests to, and, and high positions as priests to go in and lure these women in. This was abuse at every, at every form. God began to work on some people to go to Eli, the dad, and tell him this is wrong. 
You got to fix this. You got to do something about it. Eli, even though he's aged, um, even though he feels like maybe he's not connected with his sons, still go to his sons and he talks to them. That's all he does. He just simply talks to him. He says, you really shouldn't be doing this. Don't know what level of discussion went on. Don't know if there was intimidation or whatever. But Eli did nothing to enforce. And he could have enforced. And sometimes you read this and you're thinking, man, physically, the guy was half blind, couldn't, couldn't see, older. Maybe it's, is it really fair to judge Eli in his position? Eli had at his disposal temple guards and, a, and an infrastructure of people that could have shut these guys down. But what Eli did was step back and say, uh, I, better, I better have the, the approval of my sons more than I need the approval of God. Then God sends in um, an unknown prophet. Sends in this unknown person to go deliver to Eli a message. A message so powerful. And if you missed it last week, it's a, it's a, pretty, it, it's a pretty harrowing message. The messenger comes to Eli and says, because you've been disobedient, here's what God is saying. I know I promised you a priesthood that will last your lineage, uh, throughout your lineage. It will, it, will, it will be a royal priesthood. It's all over. Not only is it over, your two sons are going to die on the same day. That no man in your home will ever reach, ever reach an old age. That you will, he goes, and this is all things that directly impact more than just, more emotion in a Jewish family than you can picture. And then, by the way, I'm going to leave one in your family to weep and to mourn for all the sins. You will envy all the success that others have. I mean, just went through and delivered it. Have you ever delivered anything in a, in a, in a fit of rage where you're thinking, what did I just say? This looks like a fit of rage. The reality is this is not a fit of rage. Because why? He's going to bring it back again, that discussion back again. And he did so, he did so for one reason. And when you look at it, you're thinking, if you're a new believer or you're not a believer, you have to be looking at that and thinking, are you kidding? You've always said God was a God of love. You said he was a God of, uh, of wonder. And this is, this is not a God who would look at a family and say these things. But there was a verse in there. I think it was like verse 30. I forgot. It was like 29 or 39 or something like that. But he was really powerful. God said, here's what he said in one verse. It really didn't hit me until I was preaching it last week. I looked up. I was like, wow, notice that. God said, you took my sacrifice in my house and you hurt my people. And then you got a picture. This, is, this was his church. Those were his people. The reason he did that was to protect you. For all of us who don't have a value of ourselves, he finds this crazy intrinsic value in you and I. And so he says, I'm going to protect my people. If you've ever had anyone stand up for you, the feeling you have, this is God saying, I will smite the leadership that ever took advantage of the people currently and ever the people who, are, who will be going ahead. And that was for us. So that was the reason that God did this, was to protect the role of the priest. By the way, the, the priest was not like a pastor. This was a person who spoke on behalf of God. None of us do that. If you ever come across a, a preacher at any church you may go to that says, you know, I speak on behalf. No, you don't. No, you don't. There is but one mediator between man and God, and that is his son, Christ Jesus. That is it. Okay, so you don't need me in this picture. You graciously allow me to come up here and do this and expound on the word of God. So we're all caught up. Good. All right, review. You ready? Here we are. Chapter three, verse one. All right. 
Chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. Hunker down on that. Uh, go back to verse 1 if you could. Sorry. And, um, the, uh, you, th- you see this. Now the boy Samuel. How old is Samuel? Josephus says he's 12 years old. We don't know. But we think he's 12. We know he's not 13 because at 13 he would have different responsibilities. You'll see what those responsibilities are in just a minute. This boy Samuel is living in the temple. He's living in this particular place and Eli is living there as well. Verse 2. At that time Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. We'll stop right here for a second. Um, something I missed in verse 1. Go back to verse 1 again, if you don't mind. Sorry about that. It says, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. Why was that? Well, I can only deduct two reasons. Number one, the priests were corrupt and the people didn't listen. So why would he speak to them? You know, a lot of times, I mean, you look around at our country, man, are we getting more jacked up or what? I mean, really? really? I mean, you know, so and, and people wonder, well, you know, where's God? Where's God? And we, what have we done? Well, do we, I mean, really, do we deserve, what do we deserve? Do we deserve that kind of love and compassion? But you're about to see God's love and compassion does not die because he's in a constant pursuit of you and I. And so uh, going back to verse two, it says that uh, who, Eli, we see his eyesight being gone dim. He was lying down in his own place. Verse three. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Now, this means Samuel is serving Eli. Eli's the priest. Samuel, young boy, is taking care of all the duties that needed to be taken care of. So Eli, he's half blind. I'm talking, these are not just religious duties. These are duties where he is taking him to places of He's taking him probably to the bathroom. He's probably taking him to the, bringing his food in. He's doing everything he can to help assist Eli. Eli is, 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 is dependent on Samuel. And then did you notice the lamp of God? The lamp of God. Okay, this is a, um, a seven-branched uh, candelabra. It's a menorah. This menorah has been placed in front of the veil. It is, it's, it, for those of you enjoy this kind of stuff. It's the left of a golden incense burner. And this lamp was the only source of light allowed into the temple. And it was the role of Samuel to make sure this thing is lit. Samuel is, he's, he's, the, uh, he's the servant to the temple and to Eli. He's taking care of this older man. Verse 4. Then the Lord called Samuel and he said this. Here I am. What an introduction. This is the Lord calling to Samuel, here I am. And what did Samuel do? He ran to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, go lie down again. So he went and he lay down. What's interesting is this. He had never heard a voice like this before. Samuel, it's no, re- no wonder that he ran to Eli and said, Eli, what do you need? Probably would have called him Eli. He would have called him whatever his priestly title is. He goes, what do you need? And Eli looks at him and says, "That's I didn't call you. You just go back to bed. You're fine. Look with me in verse 6. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call you, my son. Lie down again. 
Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. So there's this interaction, and I want you to grasp in your mind, whenever you look at scripture, picture it in your mind. Picture it and wonder, what's going on here? Think of all the, the, all the intricacies. Eli, at this point, has to be wondering, because he's been waiting, and he knew God, that God was going to deliver on what he said. And he knows Samuel is getting of an age where he's going to understand some things. And Eli surely is going back into his sleep and thinking, I wonder now if this is the moment. Is this the moment that I cannot hear the voice of God, but he can? And Samuel is hearing these things. This, this lamp, again, it's lit, had to be a reminder. The lamp was lit, what? As a symbol of a representation of God's truth. That's what the lamp represented. And it was that truth that he had to look at 24 hours a day to know that he broke Eli in this dark chamber. Verse 8. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose. And again he goes to Eli and he says, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. What would you say, by the way? Knowing the torch has been passed. Knowing that you were the one who failed in that link. And he looks at him in verse 9. And I, you've got to picture, don't read this without emotion. Imagine, imagine the feeling of Eli looking at him and says, Eli said to Samuel, go lie down. And if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And so there it is. There's the picture of like, he says to him, this, is, this was what's going to happen. You are going to be, you are going to be summoned. And he said, if you know it's the Lord, I want you just simply to ask, Lord, is this you? Lord, is this you? And if it is, simply say, Lord, it, speak for your servant hears. By the way, that is typically how someone would there was a common response if a, if a master called a servant over, except they wouldn't use the word Lord. Verse 10. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak for your servant hears. Now why is the word Lord missing there? have absolutely no idea. I looked at every concordance and every commentary and everybody conjectures, so I don't know. But at any rate, he didn't respond with Lord. So he simply says, speak, Lord. I mean, he simply says, speak for your servant hears. Verse 11, then the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. Well, think about those words he just said. This is his first message to Samuel. This is going to affirm that that earlier message given to Eli was not a rage. It was not a temporary lose it moment where I can't believe you pain my people this much and I'm going to do this to you. No, 
years have gone on. And the first thing he says to Samuel is not, Samuel, thy good and faithful servant. Samuel, thank you for your obedience. He comes and he says, Samuel, what I'm about to tell you will make everyone in Israel, everyone who hears it, when he says the ears tingle, will know this, that everyone, it will rack their brain and think, this will, everyone will be speaking of this. What was that message? Here it is. Verse 12. God says, on that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. You talk about damnation in no uncertain way. God says years after all this has happened, Samuel, um, you're going you're gonna to hear something and I'm going to tell you that I am, because of the iniquity. It, it, I don't know if you catch this verse in verse 13. I just want you to go back in case you're thinking, man, God, did he, what, what would I do if I messed up? Would God throw me out? With, well, how would he do this? Watch what he says here. I'm about to punish this house forever for the iniquity that he knew. His form of knowledge of God was much greater than ours. In the fact, he could communicate and he had direct communication and understanding. This was the role in the era of a priest. This was a high, we went from judges to priests. These were the connectors. These were the mediators. These were the ones who had an understanding. Now we have, because of the Holy Spirit, the power of God that dwells in us. This man had an ability to hear from God. And God said there was nothing that he did not know. Not only did he know, he says this, um, because he knew, but because his sons were blaspheming, the blaspheme God is an unforgivable sin. If you were to ask, you know, what is the unforgivable sin? The unforgivable sin is this. It's more the act of omission these days. It's the it's the act of over it's 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 the act of omitting the power of the Holy Spirit and grieving the Holy Spirit from ever and it from ever responding to be saved. The Holy Spirit gives every man without excuse the ability to be saved. And so when you look at uh, scripture in the Gospels, there's a particular piece where a Pharisee, uh, one of the religious leaders, runs out and says to Jesus, and says to a bunch of people, see that man that Jesus healing right now? He heals in this name of a, of a, a Beelzebul. He, he, he heals in the name of what would be described as the Lord of the Flies of the Dung Pile. And Jesus looks at him, goes right up to that man, and he says this, you can call me whatever you want. But the very fact that you just called the Holy Spirit what you called him, I'm sending you to hell and there's nothing you can do about it. I mean immediate. Why? Because he blasphemed the Holy Spirit. The reality is his sons were blaspheming God by doing everything he could to blaspheme God. 
taking the very offerings. Folks, if you walked in here and found out that I was taking your offering and going out to Burn Steakhouse and rolling around town, and then, by the way, getting up here and regurgitating some podcasts that I listened to, it said I'd pray, but didn't pray. Imagine the wound. But the reality is, you called me. God called Eli. God said, I've called you for this purpose. I'm going to give you the power. And and Eli and his sons basically looked at mankind and said, they're worth more than you are. But God took that as, you're saying your sons are worth more than others. For any of you to ever sit there and think, man, why would God create this kind of agony for someone? It wasn't just because it was an insult to God. It was an insult to you. It was so that you would be protected from ever be segregated as an unimportant people, as a people that are second class, as a people that, it, for all those of us who walk and say, man, what I did in sin, what I've done for this, what I did in this area, God says, you are still that precious that I protect you. you when you, we say we are a part of God's plan, that means we're a part of his fold. He's, one, he's a protector He's a sustainer. And so, here Samuel, at probably 12 years old, is about to have an interaction with Eli. Samuel has heard these words, and in verse 15, watch what happens. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. Now, think about that. There's a couple things that hit me on that one. Number one, I'd be afraid too. Can you imagine delivering that news? But secondly, did you notice the humility? Don't miss this. The kid just heard and saw God. And what does he do the next morning? Gets up, stoops down, unlocks the doors, and opens the door. Isn't that remarkable? Susan, you hear the church phone ringing back there? It's probably... um, Tell them we're not buying. But anyway, so. um, Samuel has been mentored by Eli since he was three years old. Three years old. This isn't someone he just worked for. This was like his father. And what's about to happen is everything's going to change. Look at this verse, uh, Isaiah 3, verse 4. This verse never really hit me until I studied this. It says, God says, And I will make boys their princes, and infants shall rule over them. God is about to take a boy in adolescence and make him a prophet. He is about to give him power like this boy can never imagine, like the world cannot imagine. He's about to do this, which goes to show this is what God does when he breaks the natural order of things. Have you ever had a parent get saved and become a Christian after you did? Have you ever have that happen? It, it's, it's interesting. My dad, as a matter of fact, went on a, he got saved in his, in his, in his late 60s. I, he, he, went on a, uh, he went on a mission trip with John Zeller. Those of you who know John Zeller, you can pray for him, by the way. He's going through some cancer, and, and uh, we need, it's, it's turned its head again, on, and so we need to pray for him. But he ran an organization where he'd take coaches and high school teams and college teams over different countries. And, and so my dad got invited to go on a trip to the Dominican Republic. And my dad said to me, he goes, 
um, what, what they asked me for. I said, oh, you're a great coach. I did what any ordained minister would say. And I wasn't even a minister at the time. Any Christian would say when trying to get somebody, you know, to, to see the sense of God, you would lie, you know, and I did. I said, oh, your dad, yeah, you're great. And you are a great coach, Hall of Famer over there. And so he goes on the trip. My dad uh, is gone on a trip. It's about three or four days. I was working at the bank then. I was in line at a hotel. And Pastor Ken calls me, and I'm thinking, from Idlewild. And I remember thinking, he was on a trip, too. It is my two thoughts. My dad either died or he got saved, you know, became a Christian. And I mean, I remember thinking, what is going to happen? I, it, it, he's, Pastor said, are you sitting down? I said, yes. He said, well, you know, your father received Christ. He just prayed to receive the Lord as a Savior. And folks, I got back, got to see my dad baptized. Dad would ask a question about something of the Bible. And I remember thinking, this is weird. <laughs> My dad, by his own admission, would pull in a parking lot and start seeing parking attendants at a church and would speak another language. My dad was, uh, was one who, it was as much as I loved my father, respected my father, I never had, until those moments, spiritual conversations. With my, and, but this is what God does. I remember very clearly my mother, who would so many times, when I'd get in trouble as a younger person, I'd get in fights, and I'd be waiting in a jail, and mom would be in the jailhouse praying i remember a jail guard came to me is your last name english yes and your mom's been out there like 20 something hours praying with her scripture 25 years later you know i remember catching myself preaching and looking out and there she was taking notes i'm thinking god breaks the natural order of things so if you ever start picturing oh this is the this is my plan in life god has a plan for everyone's life he has a plan to see something fulfilled This, by the way, um, see if this makes sense. This was not a dream. Samuel did not just like have a vision of who the Lord was. It wasn't like a dream. It wasn't something subjective. It was objective. The Lord actually stood in front of Samuel and delivered this. Now, not to say he could reach out and grab his wrist, because Jesus would not come here until in, in incarnate form till you know, begotten into Bethlehem. But nonetheless, this was a presence. And folks, you just got to release it. There are dimensions we don't understand about the next realm. There just are. We are confined to so many dimensions, and that's all we know. This is how he appeared, just he did. But in a very, how can I say, physically appealing way. Verse 16. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Don't hide it from me. May God do so to you, and more also, if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. Now, don't miss this in verse 17. Do you remember when it said... Um, the third time when he went to Eli, and he's like, look, if he calls you, this is what you're going to say. Remember, he did not hear that voice again, Eli. Eli never heard those voices. It was Samuel who heard him. And so in the morning, he goes to him. Imagine he's laying awake all night, and he pulls him aside. Eli says, what did he tell you? Deep in his spirit, Eli knew God was talking, and yet Eli could not hear the voice. He says, don't hide anything from me. 
Verse 18. So Samuel told him everything. They hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. What a response. By the way, Eli went back to being a priest. Did he go to being a priest because he was obedient? Because he had nothing else to do? What do you do at that age? Where can you go? At any rate, God allowed him to stay in that role. And he went back and he served. Did he say this thinking like, I'm going to go back into this because this is my, this is my, this is my position? Did he say, or did he do this because he just simply emotionally resigned to the fact that he knew the sword would fall and it finally did? I don't know. Verse 19. And Samuel grew. And the Lord was with him. And none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. Verse 20, real quick, to explain this. Dan, farthest village to the north. Beersheba, all the way to the south. This would be like Key West to, like, what, Pensacola, something out that way. Lower Alabama, if we call it. This would be from the north to the south. This, in this chapter, you just went from a verse of... Eli and Samuel talking to all of a sudden a verse explaining all of Israel knew who Samuel was. That's a weird transition, by the way. There's no new chapter starting. There's no new, no, this is now saying, all, all of a sudden we're brought to this realization that Samuel's going to be known by it. Verse 21, and the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. How do I bring this into an understanding and application of, of now? Um, Obedience. When I think of obedience, I think of this. Um, It's a factor of God's calling on your life. There are three callings on your life. You are called to be saved. You are called to be discipled. And you are called to be obedient. You're called to be saved. You're called to be discipled. You're called to be obedient. And to serve, right? So this is a calling. And you look at this and we have to understand what is, the, what is God's call in your life? And we talk again about that natural order breaking down. There was a, a missionary in Africa. His name was Robert Moffat. He was Scottish. He goes back to Scotland to recruit more men to go back to Africa. It's being billed that he's coming. You can imagine a missionary coming home going on a journey that's lasting months in a wooden ship, finally arrives, goes to a freezing Scotland, Scottish church, and he shows up and he began speaking to the church. The church was packed, but it was packed full of women. And he knew because of the physical nature and the demands of what was going to be going on, he looked at the women that were in there that were from Scottish society. He knew they did not have the physical stature to do what he was going to, to go on a two and three year journey in the middle of the jungles of Africa. And yet, nonetheless, he, he, he gives his presentation. And I am quite confident from everything I've ever read that he never mentioned a thing of what happened in that church of ever being a success, but there was one person. Off to the side, there would have been an organ. Most organists in these churches would have been older folks who couldn't pump the pedals that would air the billows to make the sound. But what would happen, there was a young man who was pumping the pedals of the organ. 
And that young man heard that message and he responded to that message. That man's name was David Livingston. And so David Livingston became the greatest purveyor of the gospel in Africa and of our time would say that his life was moved as a child, as, an, or as, as someone who would use, pump them the pedals that give the sound to the organ to be heard, and someone who is probably not even acknowledged by the very visiting missionary. God takes the natural order out of the realm to fulfill his will. So I want to bring it up to application of us. How can you and I walk out of here in John, or I'm sorry, 1 Samuel chapter 3, we walk verse by verse, explaining scripture. Our goal here is this, that you walk out with a better understanding of scripture, but secondly, an application of it. And here it is. What does it mean to you and I who do not hear the audible voice of God? I'm going to be very clear with you. There are people who say in the Christian realm, there are some places who say you hear the voice of God in an audible sense. I believe, we believe, that you can hear from God, but not in an audible sense. That would be special revelation. There is two types of revelation. General, divine revelation, and there's special revelation. General revelation is every society that we've ever ever studied is born into an understanding and a grasp that there is a creator. There's not one society that has ever been studied, ever, that you cannot point to that did not have a draw to something that created them. Remarkable. Secondly, special revelation was given over in the word of God that is complete in the power of in what Jesus and the Lord spoke directly. Now, let me be clear on this. There are people who also say, well, you can't hear from God. You can hear from God. I'll die on that up here at this pulpit and say this. He speaks louder than words. There are moments the Holy Spirit will move in your heart and will move in you where he speaks louder than words. So it may not be a... a it won't be a word that you'll hear necessarily from heaven, but folks, it is as clear as day. And there are moments I've heard it. There's moments it's moved in me. It's moments that Jake, get your life together. Jake, anyone direct you into this. But those moments happen and you cannot plan them. You cannot picture them. There's no act of obedience that can get you to hear from him. There's no act of disobedience that can get you to hear from him. He does it on his own will. Because he has a plan that, believe it or not, is bigger than ours. So we hear about God's plan, we're his people. And then he has a plan for something to be accomplished, and he's going to do amazing things. So here it is. If you want to take notes outside of the scripture about application, about what this means in God's calling of your life, here's a few stages that I have written down. Number one, it's the attention-getting stage. This is when God gets your attention. This is when, if you've ever felt like you had a calling a purpose to want to do something, here's the first thing he does. It's the attention-getting stage, and he makes you aware. What do you do when he gets your attention? Well, it's very obvious. The first thing you do is this. Listen. Just listen. Don't try to act. Don't try to move on it. Just listen for what it is. Secondly would be this. The waiting on God stage. So the first is the attention-getting stage. Secondly, secondly would be this. The waiting on God stage. And what do you do? This is the hardest one, by the way. Any other impatient people in here? You got a bunch of you? What do you do? You relax. And 
you rest in him. Is you're always teaching me that. You have a mission agency that you work with in Italy that is like a safe house for missionaries to come in and people from ministry off the field. And she's always asking, are you resting? Are you resting? This is important that you do this. And you're thinking, no, wait a minute. You got my attention. Now I got to move. I got to do something. No, there's a time when you simply lean on him and rest in him. And that is hard. I open up the paper and I see I-275 construction improvements complete in 2029. I just want to start weeping. Like, how can that happen? It, you know, I just want, I, I still don't understand how we build an interstate system under Eisenhower. And it takes 20 presidents to build one lane on addition. But yet, nonetheless, impatience rules. Thirdly, the instruction stage. This is a stage where you start to see some action. What do you do? Learn. Learn. Don't try to be the master of something. So I would always have these conversations with college students on my back porch for years. 20-something years. Anytime you would come over, he was the, he was the resident expert in everything. Everybody start talking, start sitting there going on and on. And one time, on, uh, you know, um, I'll never forget it. One of our uh, one of the guys who was visiting, he played for the Tampa Bay Bucks, Adam Hayward, you know, and really great godly guy. He comes over and we're talking, and he never wore it on a sleeve. You know, I play for the Bucks or anything. But this football got brought up. And Dr. Know-it-all over here started talking about, oh, yeah, football this, and the Bucks this, and that. And, and Adam kind of chimed in and goes, well, do you play football? Yeah, I play for the Bucks." And just like, and I just watched the interaction, and I'm like, there it is. I'm thinking, this kid just ate the biggest slice of humble pie ever. <laughs> no. He kept telling this guy how to do his job. And I'm listening and thinking, and I finally pulled him aside one day and said, brother, stop. Stop. Like, just learn. Learn. Grow. Understand there is a beauty in learning. This is a beauty about this church. You have a learning spirit. This is why I get excited when we walk in series in the books of the Bible. Because why? Folks, I can't mess this up. You can't get up here and read 21 verses. I think it was 21. And mess up. It's just stick to the word of God. Leave the opinion out. And God will make it. The attention getting stage. The waiting on God stage. The instruction stage. And fourthly, the direction stage. What do you do? You obey. You obey and you discern and you obey and you discern. In case you don't know the history of this church, it was brought together by two churches. A church called Acacia Grove and a church called Foundation. And what's interesting is we had a business meeting Sunday night that looked more like a birthday party than a business meeting. People in a sweet spirit of things, people bringing over food, people engaging it was just, it was beautiful. But what happened there, we had visitors, people who had never been to our church walked in there. And there was three people who joined the church, or are going to be joining the church because of a business meeting. They were like, okay, we really like this. And they're like, well, you see, we don't push membership here. It's not like we're saying, you know, are you a member of Creekside? Are you a member of Creekside? We don't, we don't do that. Because why? This is the Lord's house. He'll build the church. You're his people. You're not Creekside's people. You're not 
this people or that people. But what's interesting, if someone walk in there, we're getting the benefits of people who'd walked through these stages. Brett Smith and Jeff Kerr got a chance to get up and talk about a building on property. Pat Rary got to get up and say, this is what we're doing. This is where we're going. We're walking into property that is paid for in the middle of loots. Any day now, we're going to get approval to, to start moving the dirt and get things going. It'll be the quickest announced groundbreaking ceremony ever because we ain't wasting time. We need out of here. But what's interesting is this. I could not help but think when I was writing this out of all the stages that the faithful people went through to give us what we have. What was that first stage? Attention-getting stage. There was a group of people 10 years ago that were brought together and they said, we want to do church a little different. We can do this. And then secondly, they waited. And they waited. And they sacrificed and a small group of believers from Acacia Grove went out and bought this property. And they purchased this property for hundreds of thousands of dollars and paid it off. And no building went up. And they waited. And then the instruction came. And God did some things and brought more people and different people. And and some people went. And all of a sudden, the instruction stage was out of obedience. And then the direction came to do what we're doing. And so we stand up and say, hey, we passed out the plans. This is what the church is going to look like. This is how many is going to seat. And this is, these are the rooms. And all that stage happened because there were faithful people who walked through it before us. Some, John Muir said this, that great is a man who plants a tree under whose shade he'll never enjoy. What a powerful thought to know that if our plan was to simply follow his plan, and build a church for people we'll never meet. That's obedience. That's following the will of God. Imagine if you transferred that to your life. And instead of ever questioning and wondering, when do I get what is owed? When do I get what is mine? When do I see results of all my labor? We simply say this, Lord, am I just a part of the plan that you have for something that I cannot see? I know nothing, believe it or not, of the building, the physical building of the church that's going to happen with the brick and the mortar. I'll see pictures of it. We'll call together people. What do you think the tile ought to look like? What do you think, you know, should we do this? Should we do that? But outside of that, understand something. I have one role, and I get to be the under-shepherd of you. I get to walk alongside people that are coming in from every age category, from every walk of life, and build a church. And if we never have place, may we know this. We were obedient. We were, I was obedient. You were obedient. Doing what we were called to do. And then something happens. God will accomplish what he'll accomplish. If you were to ask me what's the biggest focus of our church right now, right now, temperature, take my pulse, say, what is it? Is it to nurture is it to get on, on, on Lutzik or uh, where are we at, Newburger Road, to build that building? What is it? 
I'll tell you, if you ask me right now, on this day, it would be to stand up for life in this country that has gotten so cheapened. I mean, if folks, if we are to lose our right as a church in the, in the imminent coming days of where we're going to go, it's going to be in the banner of standing up for life. It's going to be that we are now breathing under a society where a governor and, uh, are, and, and other legislatures are saying once a baby comes out of the womb, it's still determination if that baby lives. This is bigger than the Holocaust because of the potential of what can happen. And yet, what do we have ahead of us? The thought of building a building? You think God is so concerned with that? The greatest movements of church in in the world are places you can't even freely meet. But when we get out there, if we get out there, or when we get out there, it'll be because we have not put aside the sacrifices of the Lord. That we took people from sinful, messed up positions. Some of us have stories. Some of us have bigger stories. And we can stand up and say, God got our attention. We were focused on him. God gave us an idea to wait. God gave us instruction. And then God gave us a purpose and a direction. And none of that had to do with a contractor. Had everything to do with fulfilling his plan. May we be that church. I've done enough weddings where I watched the the bride two months later go into the blues and depression because there's nothing else left to do. They've been planning for two years. Everything was going that way. They were more focused on the wedding than they were the marriage. Have you seen so many churches that were more focused on getting to a new place than they were the ministry of the place? And now bring it back to us. Are you more focused on wondering what God's going to do with you than you are a part of what you can do for the glory of God to impact others? Let's take this message home to our own heart. Let's take it home to build our home as the greatest ministry we know. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you.